Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. McKay, why in the world did Senator Mitt Romney open up to you like this? I think he is alarmed by what his party has become. He has spent the last several years inside the Senate watching cynicism and hypocrisy overtake his caucus and something in him snapped. I think he was ready to just unburden himself. And I was there to to listen. <laughs> yes, you were. That is McKay Coppins, author of an extraordinary new book about Mitt Romney titled Romney, A Reckoning. McKay is also a staff writer for The Atlantic. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive, where we are going inside the GOP and the man who was on a mission to save the GOP from Trumpism. Romney thought he could push the party in a different direction from inside the Senate. Unlike most of his colleagues, he seemed willing to risk everything to take on Trump. He was the lone senator to vote to impeach Trump in 2020 and one of seven that voted to impeach in 2021. But now, as you know, Romney is not seeking re-election. So, McKay, is that why he was willing to unleash and unload and talk to you for dozens of interviews? I don't actually think that he had made up his mind not to run when we started this project. In fact, when I first approached him, it was just a couple months after January 6th. I remember our first meeting was in his Senate hideaway, which is this little cramped windowless room that the senators get near the chamber in the Capitol building. And th there was still barbed wire fence around the uh, the building because, you know, the, the riots had just happened. And I think, honestly... His initial decision to cooperate with this book was just born of like extreme frustration and disappointment with the leaders of his party and fear for the country. I mean, he I, I still think about the, that some of those first conversations, he was still in this kind of raw space from, you know, after January 6th. And he. He, he would talk about how fragile American democracy was and, you know, how uh, the things he had seen inside the party, inside these caucus lunches over the last couple of years had led him to believe that America was really on a precipice. So I think he thought of this book as a warning. I think for really the first time in his life, he wasn't thinking about the next election. Um, you know, his ultimate decision not to run was shaped by these same themes that we had talked about. He just didn't think he had a place in the party anymore. But his, uh, I, I don't think this was a kind of on my way out, I'm going to burn all my bridges. I think he, he genuinely just 
felt like what he was seeing needed to be documented. About January 6th, let's listen to Romney in his own words. Here is what he said on the Senate floor uh, just hours after. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the president of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support is a dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. McKay, you hear raw anger in his voice from that day. Yeah, I mean, it it was interesting asking him to recount his experience on January 6th, because even months later and even years later, when we would revisit the topic, he would still get angry all over again. And he was angry for a few different reasons. I think one of them was that, uh, you know, he had actually warned Mitch McConnell a few days before uh, the 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 attack on the Capitol that this exact scenario could play out. He had talked to a, a Senate colleague who passed along some intel chatter he had gotten from a high-ranking Pentagon official, and and I actually begin the book by uh, writing about this text that Mitt Romney sent to Mitch McConnell saying. Uh, you know, I'm very worried about what's going to happen on January 6th. I think people could try to storm the Capitol. I hope that we have good security protocols in place, but I'm worried that the person who commands the resources that the police will need is Donald Trump, and he's the instigator of all of this. McConnell never responded. He never responded to that text. And when the the mob got inside the building and the senators were evacuated, uh, one of the first thoughts Mitt Romney had was, how did this happen? I told them this was going to happen. And I think in a lot of ways that that um, sort of represents how he feels about the Republican Party at large right now. Like he he has been a voice of warning against Donald Trump for years. He kept saying that we should not line up behind this guy in 2016. He said it could be cataclysmic for the country, for the party, if we let this guy take over. And nobody listened to him. And he, he, in fact, kind of became a pariah in his party for voicing these these sentiments. You know, he feels like he's been vindicated, but he's more alienated than ever from his party. Nobody seems to be willing to kind of accept the reality of who Donald Trump is and what the consequences have been to rallying around him. He's so alienated that he trashes a lot of his colleagues uh, in interviews with you. And we can get into that. But let's stay on January 6th uh, and the reckoning, because what Romney's opened up about and what he's shared with you and some of the scoops in your book are about the security concerns, about the death threats. I think it's really important to understand what lawmakers are up against, because a lot of them are not being open or vocal about this. So tell us more about that environment, the threat environment for these lawmakers like Romney. Yeah, one of the biggest revelations to me in my conversations with Romney was just how important the threat of political violence was to the psychology of elected Republicans today. Mitt Romney even told me himself about speaking at a Utah Republican convention where this was after uh, Donald Trump had had lost and Mitt Romney had become increasingly unpopular in the party for, you know, speaking out against Trump. And he, he got up on the stage and these Republican activists just booed and screamed at him. And they were so loud that he couldn't even get through his speech. And when we talked about it afterward, he, he at first tried to say, well, you know, it's a character building experience. That's, you know, it's important to sometimes do things that are unpopular. If you're not getting booed in public life, you're not doing anything. All these kind of, you know, platitudes. But then he kind of paused and he said, you know, 
if I'm being honest with myself, I was scared uh, when I was up there because people in Utah carry guns and it only takes one deranged person. And he told me story after story about Republican members of Congress, Republican senators who at various points wanted to vote for impeachment, uh, you know, voted vote to convict Trump or vote to impeach Trump and decided not to not because they thought he was innocent, but because they were afraid for their family's safety. They were afraid of what Trump supporters might do to them or to their families. And, you know, it raises a really uncomfortable question, which is, you know, how long can the American project last? If elected officials from one of the major parties are making their political decisions based on fear of physical violence from their constituents. It's just this enormous thing that doesn't get talked about enough. You can't have a functioning democracy if legislators are afraid of constituents. And yet that is what's happening. It's apparently happening all the time. Mm -hmm. It has come up again in the conversations about the chaotic bid for a GOP House speaker. Yep. Does Romney have a remedy? Does he have a remedy for turning away from this politics of violence? You know, Romney himself, after January 6th, was spending $5,000 a day on personal security uh, for him and his family. Uh, another which, scoop, another scoop from the book that just blew people away. But but it just, you know, what he said was, I know most people in Congress can't afford that, right? And, and so to some extent, as disappointed as he is with the leaders of his party, he also says like, I, I get why they're making these decisions because not everybody can spend $5,000 a day to protect their families. In terms of how to turn away from, from this kind of this vicious cycle of, of partisanship and uh, polarization and, and political violence, you know, I don't know if Romney does have the answer. I mean, this is actually an important <laughs> thesis of the book, how to incentivize our elected leaders to follow their conscience rather than um, just worry about the next election cycle. And in my very first meeting with Romney for this book, I asked him, are there any lessons from your story that we could take away for, you know, other elected leaders, future generations of political leaders? And he thought about that a lot. And um, toward the end of the process of interviews, he, he told me, you know, I think the key is to somehow get political leaders to think about um, how they'll be remembered when they're gone, not just, you know, how they'll fare in the next election cycle or the next, you know, news cycle, right? Think of, the more you think about what your obituary is going to say and the less you think about, you know, the latest poll, the more you'll be incentivized to do what you think or you know is right. Um, now, the trick is getting getting people like Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or J.D. Vance to think in those terms when they're still young, right? Romney says, it's easy for me. I'm an old guy. I'm in my 70s. I'm obviously right. thinking about my death all the time, right? But like for these for these younger senators, congressmen, whatever, who feel immortal, they they need to be thinking about the fact that they're going to die one day. And their their obituaries are going to be written. They'll be in the history books. And what do you want your line in history to be? And, you know, Romney doesn't know exactly how to make that happen. He thinks that having a family certainly helps because you're thinking naturally about your posterity. But the the trick is somehow making that top of mind in the political class. 
And I don't want to give away the very ending of your book, but it's about that issue. It's about legacy. And I love the way uh, that it's framed. So that's a teaser for people to go out and buy it. <laughs> Romney, a reckoning. But talking about a reckoning, we have to talk about Romney and how much blame he deserves uh, mm-hmm. for the trumped up party. So more on that in just a moment. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. And we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter speaking with McKay Coppins about his new book, Romney, A Reckoning. Mitt Romney has had this descent, McKay, from party standard bearer to pariah in a decade. I mean, in 2012, he was the GOP nominee for president. So how much blame does he deserve for Trumpism? Yeah, I mean, this was the question that kind of hung over all of our conversations. And um, I told him at the outset that part of what I wanted him to do for this book was really kind of grapple with whether he and Republicans like him had any complicity in Donald Trump's takeover of the party. And to his credit, he was kind of already in a headspace where he was doing that. I think he was looking back at his career. He was looking back at the moments in his pursuit of the presidency that he sort of flirted with the more, you know, extreme elements of his party. I think he realizes now that the the mistake he made and the mistake that a lot of the Republican establishment made was thinking that they could basically harness the energy of the the far right without succumbing to it. Right. And you, you see this through the Tea Party era era like they wanted the energy of those Tea Party voters. They wanted the energy of those Fox News watching Glenn Beck fans. Right. They wanted those people to turn out at, at, uh, at the polls and uh, and help them win. But they always thought of them as kind of a sideshow. They were like, yeah, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll we'll appease them and we'll throw them some red meat, but we're still in charge. And what happened in 2016 was that those people were now in charge. They took over. Right. And Mitt Romney now realizes that, you know, all those little compromises he made that didn't seem like a huge deal at the time, you know, um, Standing on a stage in 2012 and accepting the endorsement of Donald Trump. I was about to say it, getting Trump's endorsement on stage. Yes, At the time, and what he told me was like, look, 
I didn't think of Donald Trump as a serious political figure. He was a buffoonish celebrity. But, you know, his argument was, you know, if if Barack Obama can get endorsed by Kanye West and Lena Dunham, why can't I get endorsed by by Donald Trump? Right. But he saw it as a sideshow. And you could see that in the moment. Like if you watch that clip, you know, he's on the stage and he goes up and he says something like there are some things in life you just never imagine happening to you. And this is one of them. Um, and so it kind of, uh, you know, he he thought it was just kind of a silly little thing that he had to do to win the Republican nomination. Um, now he looks back on that and clearly is embarrassed by it. He wishes he didn't do it. And, and I think that that's emblematic of a lot of these uh, these small ethical compromises that he and a lot of his party leaders made not realizing the kind of Pandora's box they were opening. Yeah, there are so many moments of self-reflection uh, where, where you're able to get in Romney's head and, and you know, experience what it was like for him to see his party radicalizing. You know, there was a moment very early on, I think it was what, like 2007, where all these middle class, you know, voters are cheering for the repeal of the estate tax. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking, why are they all cheering? You know, they're I'm so glad benefit. you pulled out that moment because I thought that was such a revealing moment. Like he was talking about what it was like to run for president in the Republican primaries in his first campaign in 2007. And he's, you know, he had been this kind of moderate Massachusetts governor and he had this quaint notion that he could make his presidential campaign about the things he cared about. Right. He was like, I'm going to talk about job creation and education and uh, these, you know, important policy things. And what he found is he would get on these stages and he would, you know, he would realize very quickly that the the crowds didn't want to hear him uh, you know, talk about his like sober 59 point plan to fix the economy. They wanted red meat. They wanted him to talk about guns and abortion and killing terrorists. And he, he, he said there was this one, one rally that you're mentioning where he, he said, um, you know, we're going to, when I'm, when I'm elected, we're going to repeal the death tax and everybody cheered. And he said, you know, I didn't even really know if I believed that. I wasn't sure I, I thought a repeal of the death tax was was a good idea. But it's one of those things that you say when you're running for president because you have no idea what you're talking about. That That's what he said to me. But he said he had this wow. moment in in the rally while he saw everybody cheer where he suddenly was like, why is everybody applauding for this? No one in this in this room is going to ever face an estate tax. Right. That it, that it, it's I think. Five million dollars or more is the is the limit. And he said he realized that it's just nothing but partisan tribalism. Our our side is for this. So everybody cheers, whether it benefits them or not. I think he he tried, honestly, as a presidential candidate to push those moments of clarity away because it made it harder for him to do the job that he had to do of winning, winning the election. He has other awakenings as well. For example, when Donald Trump is president and starts calling the press the enemy of the people, mm. and then random voters get up in front of microphones and assail the press and de- denigrate the press. And Romney says he's thinking to himself, what's gone wrong with my party that, that so many voters don't want the basics of democracy, like a free yeah. press? Mm-hmm. At the same time, Romney is very honest about Fox News and right-wing media and the mm. hollowness of it. He's critical of Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. Did any of that surprise you? It, it didn't surprise me that he felt that way. I think I was surprised at times by how blunt he was. You know, it, 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 he, he talked about how he thinks Sean Hannity is obsessed with 
Tucker Carlson beating him in the ratings and that that pushes Hannity to be more and more extreme. Uh, and then his quote Which, to by, me by was, the way, I agree with. I think that did happen when mm. Tucker was number one. I do agree with that assessment. Hannity was trying to catch up. So there is some truth to that. But he also describes watching Hannity cheer for him when he was the presidential nominee right. in 2012. Yep. And then Hannity turns on him. That, that well, And that that was such an interesting moment, you know. It, right around the time of the first impeachment uh, saga beginning with Donald Trump, uh, Romney had made it clear that he was open to voting for conviction. And he was one of the only Republicans who was open to doing that. And Sean Hannity actually did this segment one night where he kind of railed against Romney as becoming this pathetic swamp creature. And Romney watched it and was kind of shocked because he was like, hey, we're friends. You were one of my biggest boosters when I ran for president in 2012. What's going on? So he thought that he could just call up Hannity and sort of clear the air. He was like, clearly there's something going on. I'll just, I'll just talk to him. He called up Hannity, you know, tried to be friendly with him and Hannity just immediately tore into him and, you know, say, was saying, why aren't you, why won't you just get on board with Trump? Why won't you get on board with the party? Um, and there was one especially funny moment where, uh, Hannity said, well, what you're so, you're so, uh, you know, mad about Donald Trump. Why aren't you more, uh, upset about Burisma and Burisma and, and Mitt Romney, which is essentially the like conspiracy, you know, it's an anti-Biden conspiracy theory, right? Right. And Mitt Romney, who does not really exist in the conservative media bubble and doesn't know the shorthand that, uh, the conservative media uses for all these things actually goes, what's Burisma? And Sean Hannity just explodes and goes, how do you not know what Burisma is? <laughs> It's perfect. And, and so it, it kind of just shows how far out of step Mitt Romney by 2019 had become with the conservative media. Precisely. And and Romney didn't want to be inside it. He didn't want to no. be in step. But he's seen just how deranged it's become. All right. So here's the Romney retirement announcement. There's something he says in this clip that I want to ask you about. I've spent my last 25 years in public service of one kind or another. At the end of another term... I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. Now, we face critical challenges, mounting national debt, climate change, and the ambitious authoritarians of Russia and China. Neither President Biden nor former President Trump are leading their party to confront those issues. Romney is right about the gerontocracy problem in the United States, but I was struck by how he hit Biden on climate change. You know, he is still a Republican. Romney is still a Republican. So it just gets me to, to think about why did Romney stay with the party? I actually asked one of his sons about this. This isn't in the book, but I asked that question to one of his sons because all, all five of his sons have left the party. None of them are, are Republicans anymore. And I said, well, so what keeps your dad there? And, and you know, uh, he said, we're constantly telling him, you know, well, you, you got to just be become an independent. You could probably get elected as a senator in Utah uh, as an independent, right? Because a lot of Democrats and, and independents there like him. And his his son's theory is that he feels this obligation because of his dad. Frankly, his father was a a, a leading Republican figure in the 1960s from the liberal wing of the party who who staged this revolt against Barry Goldwater and and the right-wing radicals that were taking over the party back then, his sons feel like Mitt Romney 
feels an obligation to do the same thing as his dad. He needs to uh, stay in the party, fight for its soul, try to steer it back toward what he considers sort of a more traditional, reasonable, uh, productive form of republicanism. But I think what he's found in the course of these past few years in the Senate is that at least as long as Donald Trump is the leading figure in his party, that's probably not possible. Mm. All right, next, since this is Inside the Hive, I want to go inside the making of your book. Why did Romney talk? How did you do it? We're going to get into that with McKay Coppins in just a moment. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why did the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter talking with McKay Coppins. McKay, I've known you for a long time. I remember when you were covering the Romney campaign in 2012 uh, when Romney was running for president. You know, you were you were one of the boys in the bus. You were on the mm-hmm. campaign press bus. But Romney never gave you an interview that year. He did it. So it wasn't as if you all were tight no, back I- then. And you had this inside access. No, it's funny. I think people assume that I've had this like long relationship with Mitt Romney. I actually didn't interview him until he arrived in the Senate in 2019. That was my first interview. In 2012, it was interesting because I, I was the only Mormon reporter on the campaign bus. Um, and, you know, I think some people probably assumed that would give me some special access to this Mormon presidential candidate. The opposite was actually true. Romney's political consultants had basically decided that his religion was a political liability and that they didn't want to talk about it just as a matter of strategy. And so they kind of looked at me with some wariness because I was the reporter in the back of the bus writing the inconvenient stories about how the candidate was shaped by his faith and how his politics intersected with Mormonism. And and I thought those were interesting windows into who he was. But, you know, his consultants just didn't want to, you know, deal with me. So I never got an interview. It's funny, though, when we began talking about doing this book, uh, Mitt said, you know, I've been thinking about it. And, you know, upon reflection, I think that it's actually good that you get the Mormon thing. That's that's an advantage. And so I do think that helped in in kind of the process of uh, the interviews, because we were able to use sort of a shorthand when it came to the religious stuff that. You know, he didn't feel like he had to explain what a Mormon mission was or, you know, explain various scriptural or hymn references because his faith really is central to who he is. And it's been especially important in shaping how he's made these decisions uh, the last few years. So you were able to talk to him so many times. You had 45 interviews and you shared with him a draft of the book 
So tell me about mm-hmm. that decision and what happened. It's kind of yeah. rare, isn't it? It, it? it is. But my my pitch to him was basically, I want all the access that I would get as an authorized biographer, but it's not authorized because you don't get any control over what goes in the book. And that that's a pretty audacious ask, right? My one offer to him, and I, I actually took this from Walter Isaacson, who who did the same thing with Steve Jobs when he wrote his biography. I, I said, I will let you read the book before it's published. And if you want to have a good faith conversation about, you know, things in the book that you think aren't fair or need more context or whatever, I'm happy to have that conversation. But ultimately, it'll be my decision what goes in the book. And, you know, when I gave him the book, uh, the draft of the manuscript back uh, in the spring of this year, uh, I was obviously very interested to see what he would think because, they, you know, this book is not a hagiography. There are definitely passages that, you know, are unflattering. And there are things that... And there are parts he disagreed with. That there are. And, and we had some, you know, difficult, uh, slightly adversarial conversations after he read the book because, he, you know, he disagreed with how I framed certain things. He disagreed with some of my insights into his kind of psyche. but. You, you know, the, those conversations were productive, I think. Uh, he, what I was surprised by is that he didn't ask me really to take out a whole bunch of the revealing stories about his his Republican colleagues or, or you know, uh, inside the caucus meetings or anything like he you know, I think he was surprised by how much he had told me and maybe a little worried about his relationships. But that was not really the focus of those conversations. The conversations after he read it were about um, whether. I had placed too much emphasis on the points in his career where he had uh, indulged kind of rationalization and self-justification and and excused kind of some of those compromises that he made in pursuit of winning the presidency. You know, it's not that he didn't own up to those. He just was worried that it would come across as, uh, you know, like his entire life has been one sort of amoral drift toward like moral relativism or something. And, and I was like, you know, I, we, we had some good conversations about that. And I think I, I actually came to understand him better. And the, and the insight that I got from those conversations was that it's not that Mitt Romney has ever been without a conscience. And I think this is important because I think it's true of a lot of our political leaders. You know, Mitt Romney said, I always had this kind of nagging conscience trying to get me to do what was right. And so those times when I rationalized, it was because I was trying to reconcile what I knew was right with what I needed to do to win. And he's now at a point in his career and in his life where he's following that conscience more more clearly than ever. And I think it's in part because of how high the stakes have gotten in American politics. Absolutely. And it's so rare to have this level of access and insight. And you're even hanging out at his town home in Washington, eating salmon burgers. <laughs> What's the deal with these burgers? I, I wish they were salmon burgers. They're not sad. They were the frozen salmon fillets that Lisa Murkowski had given him. Um, and it's funny. He told me, I don't actually like salmon fillets. I don't like salmon. But, uh, you know, I find if I put them on hamburger buns and cover them in ketchup, you know, I can deal with them, which, you know, it's funny. That detail has gotten more attention than like half of the, you know, political revelations of the book because it's so <laughs> gross. <laughs> the other thing that's getting so much attention are, are all, all the uh, quotes about his colleagues. He, he's gone mm-hmm. thermonuclear. What do you think has, has been underappreciated then? What's been missed in all the coverage of your book? 
Um, you know, I think that people assume with all these quotes that uh, that Mitt Romney just sat down and said, OK, I've got 25 scores to settle. And here, now I'm going to just, you know, tick off my, my zingers on every prominent Republican. Uh, you know, Rick Perry is a low IQ prima donna. Mike Huckabee is a caricature of a for profit preacher. And these are things that he said. But a lot of these things are, are things that he wrote in his journals you know, 10 years back. And I later found out that when he gave me his journals, he hadn't reread them. He hadn't like (laughs) gone back to check what he was giving me. He just handed them to me and said, I think these might be interesting to you. And so he was a little surprised by how much was in them. Um, once I, you know, wrote, wrote the book and gave it to him. But I, I think what that shows is that he's been aware of the fact that his party has unserious and maybe even dangerous people leading it for a long time. And and this goes back many years. It's part of the reason that he justified doing certain things to win the Republican nomination in 2012, because he felt it was really important to make sure that Newt Gingrich and Rick Perry didn't win the nomination. Um, It's, uh, you know, you can argue that it's petty. You can argue that it's uh, born of his, you know, past rivalries or score settling or whatever. But he is worried about the state of our democracy and what these leaders of his party are doing to the democracy. And, you know, I don't think he feels that bad about being honest about them. He said the things that a lot of people in his party know to be true, but aren't willing to say. Look, Donald Trump's reaction to Romney and to the book is a perfect example. You know, he put out a statement full of lies. Uh, Trump claimed that Romney wrote the book and not you. Right. There were just there was like there's so much bullshit in that statement that I don't even want to spend time unpacking it. But that's the point. Uh, the party has been overtaken by Trump's bullshit. I uh, I sent that that statement to Mitt. Um and hold on, I want to, I'll just pull up the text. Um, he, he wrote back, ha, 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 he's such a whack job. <laughs> so Mick, Mick, Mick kind of enjoyed uh, enjoyed Trump's, Trump's response. Well, I, we should quote a little bit of it then. Here's Trump. Mitt Romney, a total loser that only a mother could love, just wrote a book that's unpredictable and horrible and boring. And I'm so proud I forced him out of politics. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's full of junk. But, you know, it's remarkable that Romney is so... Uh, at ease or at peace now that he can reply and say Trump's a whack job. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. I, I, I think that Romney is now at a place where he is much less worried about how he is perceived by people like Donald Trump and his allies and much more, much more concerned with how history will remember him. And I, you know, I, I think that's a that's a good, healthy place to be. But it, it is unusual. And I uh, I think it, we'd be much better off if people, frankly, in both parties were thinking that way. Amen to that. That's why this book is so incredible. It's called Romney, A Reckoning. McKay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our engineer is Gabe Caroga. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. Email me anytime, bstelter at gmail.com. Let us know who you want to hear from and what you want to hear about on next week's episode. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco. 
that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.